want you to look again with me this morning in Windows verse 20 of our text. You'll see the ministry of our Lord Jesus is described through the eyes of the prophet Isaiah. It says, A bruised reed shall he not break, and a smoking flax shall he not quench. Now, of course, as verse 17 says, you'll notice it there, these are actually the words of Isaiah the Messianic prophet who has shown centuries before Jesus the true nature and essence, the true force of the coming Messiah's ministry. And it's in the midst of the Holy Spirit's inspiring Matthew to quote Isaiah that he uses the prophet's familiar emblem of a bruised reed and a smoking flax, both of which are used to teach the same truth, really the same lesson, the same realities about how Christ works in the hearts and the minds of men and women and young people. The challenge, therefore, is understanding just exactly what a smoking flax is, what a bruised reed looks like. Well, that's the first challenge. And I'm sure most of you here already have in your minds, in your mind's eye, a mental picture of both of these. I've certainly utilized these, demonstrated them here. However, the second challenge is to fully realize why Isaiah and why Matthew uses these symbols, and what exactly they mean for us. And you know what I can assure you of, beloved, is what they mean for you and me is glory and wonder and power and grace and reminders that all of us need to hear. Let's pray. Father, thank you how we've been blessed this morning already. The fellowship of your saints, the admonishing one to another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, the reading of your word, and now we come to this book, your word. And I pray that you will speak to our hearts truly. We need to hear these, all these truths in Jesus' precious name. Amen. There are three things this morning that are among the clearest and the most critical lessons in the Bible's prophecy, fulfilled and current, about the character and the calling of our Lord Jesus in his work on this earth. Three lessons, and again, powerfully illustrated in the Bible's youths of both the smoking flax and the bruised reed. The first one you'll notice is, number one, a lesson about weakness. About weakness. After all, think of this. A smoking flax, in contrast to, say, a burning flame, is essentially struggling to stay alive. Now, it's a spark, to be sure, but it is so faint that it can be completely extinguished with the slightest touch or the smallest breeze. In our Lord's day, a tiny piece of cloth, and it was typically sackcloth, would be dipped into animal fat or olive oil. That would be used as a wick. A wick that eventually lost its strength and then would soon start to smolder and die. So that, yes, it is weak, it's tiny in most cases, and in that case, it's flickering. The first part of verse 20 says what? A bruised reed shall he not break. And, of course, a reed... Easily shaken in the wind, as Jesus said, is in itself, again, a picture of weakness. But a bruised reed is doubly weak. Trampled upon in Jesus' day by soldiers or by horses, it is entirely compromised. So, there you have it, beloved. Two pictures of how God, how the Lord Jesus, how Isaiah and the Holy Spirit, how God sees men and women and young people in this broken world. Not giant bonfires, not mighty oaks, as it were, without Christ and without truth 
And without His work in us, our mind and our body of flesh are very weak, very frail things. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 2.3, I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. Now think about that. That's the Apostle Paul having already written about nine books in the New Testament and he speaks of fear and weakness and trembling. Later he says in 2 Corinthians 7.5, when we were come into Macedonia, our flesh had no rest. We were troubled on every side, without were fightings, and within were fears. Now folks, that might not be the image that you have always had of the great Apostle Paul, but that was his own testimony. So that there were times that Paul felt as if he were a smoking flax, a weak and a struggling flame flickering in the wind. He even testified once that he was, that he so despaired that he despaired even of life itself. Elisha, the greatest prophet, the boldest and bravest prophet of the Old Testament, had his moments and he wished to die. He feared that he could no longer go on in the face of a woman named Jezebel. Same for David, who said that he would have, he would have, and the psalmist Asaph, he would have fainted. For Job, for Jeremiah, for Moses, just go through the Bible. All through the Bible you will find those who testified that the spirit was willing, but the flesh was weak, and so weak. So weak that like the smoking flax, they felt as if they were about to go out. This, beloved, is the weakness we all have. And for some, and for sure, that is the weakness as lost Gentiles that all of us had. As lost Gentiles, which the text is talking to, that weakness is what first and once characterized our entire body and spirit and mind. But how true the prophecy was in the ministry of our Lord. The Lord Jesus did not come, you understand, to merely extinguish all the smoldering wicks in this world. He never came as an executive or as a CEO to say, you're not producing enough light. And then just snuffed out the woman at the well or the thrice denying Apostle Peter or the impatient and hot-headed James and John or even Judas who he knew was a traitor for three and three and a half years. Folks, think about this for a moment. When you read the seven letters to the seven churches from the Lord Jesus Himself from heaven to those churches on earth, you read about people and about churches that you and I as Christians would have snuffed out long ago. We would have removed the candlestick. We would have removed the candlestick from those specific churches without any letters of encouragement and telling them to repent or be revived. But there is our Lord recognizing the weakness, highlighting the weakness, rebuking the weakness for sure, but never once using the weakness as reason to extinguish the spark. You see, folks, one of the things about smoldering wicks is that instead of giving light, and warmth they're actually annoying in fact you know that the full picture of smoking flax includes this sort of irritating obnoxious annoying black smoke that rises out of it in 17th century london that stuff uh, pretty much stained all of the buildings and the chimneys in that town and they called it smut in those days the actual word for it as the wick would smolder that smoke in jesus's day would get into the eyes and into the throat 
and it would irritate and cause problems. This is the smoking flax of that challenging teenager who has, for maybe some of you in this room, become a constant irritant, and we might quench it. This is the smoldering flax of Saul of Tarsus or the church at Corinth or Euodius and Syntyche or Thomas and that rich young ruler or of that poor woman, that woman that was caught and dragged in John chapter 8. Also, this is the annoying smoking flax of all of us. All of us who are or who have ever been in our weakness before the Lord Jesus Christ. We would be inclined. We would be inclined to look at people like that and say no. No, they've had enough time. They're smoldering long enough. They're bringing out this black smoke and it's irritating. We would be inclined to simply put it out. Pastor, I know what you mean. My own kids are smoldering wicks right now. Every day they're irritating me, annoying me to the point of I have a huge headache. You know what I say to that? Just follow the instructions on that aspirin bottle in your cabinet. It says take two every six hours, but it also says keep away from children. Just get away for a while. Amen. (laughs) And I want to say this. You can get away from smoldering wicks as often as you need, but don't extinguish them. They are all works in progress, just like you are, just like I am. I remember years ago, I was behind a car on US-1. I saw this car in the parking lot where I'd been studying, and then sure enough, I got behind it on US-1, and it was driving really, really slow. I mean, brutally slow, as in the actual speed limit slow, if you know what I mean. (laughs) I noticed on his license plate had seven letters, and you know, I always try to decipher these vanity plates, but this was a hard one, B-P-G-I-F-W-M. And so I'm driving, and I'm, I'm really annoyed, but I'm trying to find out different solutions in my head, what those letters stand for, if anything. Uh, big punk got in front of me, not quite, close. <laughs> Bring pastor's grief in Florida with slow, no, that wasn't it. Finally, I figured it out. Be patient. God isn't finished with me. Dude had to get spiritual on me right there in front of me. Okay. <laughs> Aren't you glad that God has been patient with you? Aren't you, aren't you glad He didn't put out that smoldering wick right away? Verse 20, A bruised reed shall he not break, and smoking flax shall he not quench, till he send forth a judgment unto victory. And in His name shall the Gentiles trust. There was brought unto Him, now follow this, Then was brought unto him one possessed with the devil, blind and dumb, and he healed him insomuch that the blind and the dumb, which means he couldn't hear, both spake and saw. In other words, follow this. As soon as Matthew quotes the prophecy of Isaiah about the Lord Jesus Christ, he then records one of the single greatest witnesses of this truth with the smoking flax of a man. A, demon-possessed. B, he's blind. And C, he's deaf. Three strikes. At least three strikes according to the world's evaluation. And by the way, let me just say that contrary to the phony so-called compassion of civil rights and justice seeking of this world and all of its power brokers, what elitists without God really do, because of what they really want to do with the demon-possessed or the blind or the deaf or the struggling or the poor or the working class or the humble or the bruiseries of society, what they really want to do is silence them. 
They want to marginalize them, marginalize them and keep them weak. This is exactly what the Pharisees, this is exactly what the Sanhedrin, the power brokers of Jesus' day did. Caesar and Caiaphas and Ananias, they just went along and extinguished every single weakened spark to make room for their flaming torches. They did that with the Gentiles. They did it with the Samaritans. They did it with the sinners and the poverty-stricken Jews. They used religion and law against the smallest spark just to snuff it out completely through their deception, hypocrisy, lies, pride. We see it all around us. The entire focus was to break the bruised reeds and quench the smoking flax. But note this carefully. Notice that our Lord Jesus comes, and Isaiah says He comes with judgment, and the Lord Jesus comes in Isaiah's book with mercy in order to what? Not to quench that smoking flux. Not to break that bruised reed. Not to remove it. Our Lord comes like oxygen to a flame. He comes to the faint glow of the tiniest spark, and with His matchless grace, and with His tenderness, and wisdom, and power, instead of quenching and extinguishing that spark, he's, He proceeds to fan it. With His power and His glory, He feeds it and slowly gives it more and more life. I can tell you right now that as a small child, I learned very quickly how to take any small spark and turn it into a big fire. Mom and I were talking last night. She mentioned how in Wichita Falls, Texas, where my dad was stationed, I had noticed our Rambler station wagon, as it often did, had gasoline sort of dripping out of the gas cap area. You know, apparently dad had just filled the car up, and in those days, many of you know that with the heat and expansion, the gas, if it was full, would just overflow, and it would just by design, just sort of drip out of the gas tank. And so as a five-year-old, other five-year-olds would see a problem. I saw an opportunity. <laughs> so I sneaked in the kitchen. I got my, some matches, and I got some sticks, some dead grass, put it on the driveway right underneath where the gas was hitting the floor, the ground. So when I lit that little pile, it was just smoldering. It was more smoke, honestly, than it was fire until... Predictably, that drop came down. When the first one came down, it was a little mushroom cloud. It was awesome. <laughs> so it, then it did it again. Each time, I added more sticks and grass, and my little fire was my own personal volcano. Thankfully, my dad saw it, <laughs> came running out, and I think he kicked me like a field goal through the things. <laughs> before I killed myself and the car and everybody else. But I knew how to take a little thing. I could do it with a magnifying glass. You've done it. Do you know what fuel does to a spark? You know what oxygen does to a tiny, smoldering flame. The Bible says, A bruised reed shall he not break, and the smoking flax shall he not quench. In other words, through the oxygen and through the fuel of truth and judgment, our Lord comes to the flickering flames of Simon Peter's broken heart. And he says, Simon, son of Jodas, lovest thou me? Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Feed my sheep. And there is the Lord Jesus fanning the flame, the smoldering flame of Peter's heart, reviving his spirit, fanning that flame, he was creating a witness 
of Jesus' grace and power for all of us to follow. To the weak and to the smoldering churches at Thyatira and to Sardis and Philadelphia, the Lord says, He that hath an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto you. Remember, Jesus says to them, repent, do the first works, hold fast that which you do have, all of this truth, all of this judgment, always with the breath of life for the Lord Jesus Christ who loved those churches and had the power to save them. I remember years ago reading the biography of Lewis Wallace. General Wallace was born in Indiana in 1827. His father, David Wallace, was the governor. His brother John died of scarlet fever, and then his mother died of consumption, as they called it in those days. And then his father died, and he was seven. A neighbor, Mrs. Hawkins, took him in and raised, in fact, all of the Wallace boys. At that time, young Lewis became a believer in Christ because of her testimony, her witnessing to them, her taking that opportunity, and fanning the flames of the gospel in his heart. Lewis would join the Indiana militia. He fought in the Mexican War. He went on to law school and he practiced law in Covington. During that time, his heart grew cold. As you might expect, grew cold spiritual things. He was without church, without teaching. In 1864, President Lincoln asked him to Wallace to take command of the 8th Army Corps. And he did. He's most famous, in fact, for saving the White House from destruction, as you may remember, from capture. In 1865, he was given command of the court-martial of the Lincoln assassination gang. During that trial, he sketched and he painted a picture that is known as the conspirators. It's still one of the most famous paintings from that era. He settled in Indiana with his wife and his children. General Wallace found himself one day on a train in Indianapolis. Wallace noticed that sitting next to him was the famous, really world-famous, atheist at that time, Robert Ingersoll, Madeleine O'Hara's hero. Naturally, Mr. Ingersoll began to attack and assail the Bible, which is what all uh, uh, ardent atheists do because they hate something they don't believe in. He especially assailed the resurrection, the story of the resurrection. And so General Wallace listened and remembered his faith as a child. He decided that after that he would personally research. He had time now on his hands and he would look at the story of Christ and the resurrection and perhaps write a book agreeing with Robert Ingersoll. He began to read, he began to study, and he read mostly the Gospels. And as he did, the Holy Spirit of truth started fanning that spark, that flame in his soul. He studied history and the skeptics He studied theology, anything that related to the resurrection, but he always found himself going back to the gospel. In 1879, he published his book. Except after reading all of the gospels, he chose to write a novel. That novel he called Ben-Hur. It was written, he said, quote, to demonstrate the necessity of a Savior and that the Savior is one, Jesus Christ. That book was a huge success. As some of you know, in 1899, With General Wallace at the premiere, Ben-Hur became the greatest production in the history of Broadway. It ran for 21 years. They used horses and chariots. It was taken around the world to Europe, Australia, New Zealand, and almost always it was used. Can you imagine Broadway? It was used as an evangelistic tool to bring people to Christ. Even later, Cecil B. DeMille made a movie about him. 
Lou Wallace would later write that Ben-Hur was autobiographical. That just like Judah Ben-Hur in the story, it was the love and the mercy of God that would not let him go. That simply would not let him go. The smoking flax, our Lord Jesus came with truth and judgment. He comes, the Bible says, with grace poured into his lips. And all of it because our Lord in his work and in his ministry did not come to quench the flax that's smoking or smoldering or to break the bruised reed. Look, folks, yes, our minds are weak. Our flesh is frail. But Christ did not come to despise our weakness. He came to give life and life more abundantly. His work is not to extinguish or to reject. His work is to redeem, to restore, rejuvenate, and yes, revive. All of which he accomplishes in the power of his word. Which leads us to the third thing you'll notice in the text. Number one is a lesson of weakness. Number two is a lesson of witness. Number three, I want you to notice there's a lesson of worthiness. Verse 20 again, a bruised reed shall he not break, and smoking flax shall he not quench, till, literally until, he send forth judgment unto victory. Now wait a minute. Notice, beloved, that the verse begins with bruised reeds and smoldering wicks. It begins with weakness. But notice that the verse ends with the word victory. That word victory is a Greek word, Nike, N-I-K-E, Nike, sort of stole it. It's only used one other time in the New Testament where Paul says three different times in 1 Corinthians 15, Thanks be unto God which giveth us the Nike, the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. He says in 1 Corinthians 15, 34, Death is swallowed up in Victory. By the way, three times the Greek word Nike is used in 1 Corinthians 15, a chapter that begins, as most of you know, with the definition of the gospel. And of course, Paul says to have your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel, a.k.a. Nikes. I'm just saying theology. You have to have a doctor's degree to come up with that. And don't get me to talk about wearing these Nikes when we are raptured into the air and cross the River Jordan. Air Jordan Nikes. I'm just telling you, we could do this all night. <laughs> now, wait a minute. Notice the word till in verse 20. Jesus will not quench the smoking flax until what? Until victory. You know, I suppose at every graveside service I've ever conducted, I've read almost everyone from 1 Corinthians 15. And I've read from that great, great text on victory. Whenever it uses the word, understand this, it does so as absolute and ultimate victory. In other words, not just winning a battle, but winning the war. He says, oh, grave, that's our greatest enemy, right? Oh, grave, where is thy victory? It's not there for the grave. And as Matthew quotes Isaiah in the text, the smoking flax shall not be quenched until he sends forth judgment unto victory. In other words, look, folks, there is ultimately no defeat. It might be smoldering. There is no defeat ever for the child of God. 
And when he's finished, the unworthy, which is what we are, become worthy. We didn't make us worthy. He makes us worthy. Smoldering at times. Faint and weak, perhaps. A little spark. Yes, maybe so. But that's never where it stays. He maketh his ministers a flame of fire true his angels. But when it comes to the Gentiles, in verse 21, the smoking flax shall he not quench until he sends forth a judgment unto victory. Some of you here this morning, sometimes, maybe right now, you feel like you're just smoldering and you're faint and you're a flickering flame and maybe you're discouraged. Maybe, you know what, maybe your spirit feels like a tiny spark and your soul is downcast and you feel like a failure as a believer. Can I show you what the text says in Isaiah? On the screen you'll notice Isaiah 42. A bruised reed shall he not break, and the smoking flax shall he not quench. He shall bring forth judgment unto truth. Look at this. He shall not fail nor be discouraged till he have set judgment in the earth. In other words, follow this. We might get discouraged. We do get discouraged. Matter of fact, we might feel so ashamed of our failures that we want to quit. But you know what he says right there? Jesus isn't discouraged about you. He won't quit with you. Just because you failed here or there, it's a flickering there, he will not be discouraged. He's not fed up with you. I am, but he's not, amen? <laughs> and as we noted, if Jesus didn't quit on the Apostle Peter, when he cursed and denied him at his greatest, greatest moment of opportunity to witness, if the Lord Jesus did not quit on the church at Ephesus, or Thyatira, the church at Corinth, or on John Mark, or John Newton, or John Morris. He's not going to quit on you. J. Wilbur Chapman was one of the great evangelists of the 18th century. He had a strong influence on both D.L. Moody and Billy Sunday. David Otis Fuller got saved at one of his meetings. But J. Wilbur Chapman was often sick, often in a lot of pain. And in his words, he was heavily burdened by the pain and what was pulling him down and away from his work. We sing his hymn in this church, One Day, One Day When Heaven, oftentimes. We also sing another hymn of his that was written shortly before he died. He died on Christmas Day at 59 years of age. But he wrote these familiar words. Jesus, what a friend in weakness. Let me hide myself in him. Tempted, tried, and sometimes failing. He my strength, my victory wins. Hallelujah, what a Savior. Hallelujah, what a friend. Saving, helping, keeping, loving. He is with me. To the end. Hey, don't give up on yourself, beloved. Don't give up on others, even if they're smoking flax. Because with Christ, he's not giving up. With Christ, there is always hope. And he isn't discouraged. 
He isn't broken, and he will never quit. He's still at the helm. He's still where he has promised he will always be. So why should you quit? Why should you compromise? Why should you despair? Why should you or I ever huddle in fear and intimidation when the captain of our soul shall not fail nor be discouraged till he sets judgment in the earth and everyone waits for his law? John Bunyan once told the story of a storm out at sea. It was a particularly terrifying storm. All of the passengers were huddled together in absolute fear in the center of the ship and the doors that lead out to the deck were tightly shut. Nobody dared go out unless the waves washed them overboard. But they all wondered, is this ship going to survive? Finally, there was this one man who was braver than the rest. He ventured out and he clung with all of his might to the ropes, to the posts, and suddenly made his way to the pilot house. He simply wanted to ask the captain if there was something they could do to help save that ship. Finally, reaching the pilot house, drenched with water, he noticed something immediately that turned all of his fear into courage. He turned around without even speaking to him. He made his way back to the passengers that were still trembling and and still wondering. And you know what he said? He said to them all, there's nothing to fear. I saw the captain's face, and he is not alarmed. Beloved, in the midst of those flickering times, And the bruised times, shattering, boisterous sea in the midst of a raging storm, please don't forget this. Don't forget to go to the pilot house. And don't forget to look into the captain's face because he will not fail. He is not discouraged. He cannot be broken. Jesus, what a help in sorrow. While the billows o'er me roll, even when my heart is breaking, he, my comfort, heals my soul. Our heads are bowed, please, and our eyes are closed for a moment. You know, there's several applications that I've made in my own life and heart to this prophecy by Isaiah and these words of Matthew. One is to recognize that God's not given up on me. He won't give up on me. Sometimes I'm weak and faint and frail, like all of God's servants. The, others, the other application is to recognize that I shouldn't give up on others. That God's not going to give up on that church, even like church at Corinth. God's not giving up on that flickering flame that used to be bright and blazing. God is not going to come down and just break a bruised reed. Neither should I. And beloved, neither should you. You know what God loves? Quoting Isaiah again, he loves the repairer of the breach. He loves the one who comes along and sees the bruised reed and says, you know what, I'm going to help fix that. I see a little tiny flame and another brother or sister in Christ. I'm going to fan the flame. I'm going to help them. I'm going to encourage them. Pastor Blaylock, I'm here today, and and I'm a believer by the grace of God, but I needed this reminder. Maybe you're discouraged. Maybe your neighbor is. Maybe your wife or husband or your your children are. Maybe those teenagers are irritating you as little smoldering flames. I don't know what it is, but you say, Pastor Blaylock, I'm a believer, but I needed... As a Christian, this message today, in my heart and life, as a testimony to the Lord to that, and that's always a good thing, I raise my hand with heads bowed, eyes closed. Who would say that, would you? Through the room, and amen, and amen, and I raise mine. 
Jesus is your encourager. He's not going to give up on you. Pastor Blalock, I'm here today and I don't know that I'm, that I'm saved. To you, I just want to say this very carefully. This prophecy by Isaiah about the Lord Jesus Christ coming to Jesus, the Messiah, coming to his people in Israel. This prophecy about then coming to the Gentiles is a prophecy about salvation. And if you're here today and you're not saved or you don't know that you're saved, today is the day of salvation for you. God sent his son, Jesus. He fulfilled those five 400-year-old prophecies, 600-year-old prophecies, all of them, so that you would know he's the Savior, that the Son of God is the only way to heaven, as he said. If you're here today, you can be saved. Your heart can be aflame with the knowledge that you're on your way to heaven. If that's you today, could we pray for you? We won't embarrass you. We won't come to you. You say, Pastor, like that's me. I don't know for sure that I'm saved, but I want to know it and I need to know it. With heads bowed, eyes closed, who would say that? Just lift your hand high enough where we can see you. Amen, sir. God bless you, sir. Anyone else? Raise your hand high enough where we can see you. All right. I'm not sure I'm saved, Pastor. I want to be sure. I need to be. Okay. We're going to sing in just a moment our hymn of invitation. And here's an altar. I encourage you to do business with the Lord. If you need to speak with someone, Brother Andy's here at the front. If it's joining the church, we have someone join the church almost every week for a while. Baptism, making a public profession, salvation for sure. Or just kneel at the altar as a Christian. You know, you can be, you can be like our Lord Jesus in this world and help out the bruised reeds and help out the smoldering flax. That's this area. One day Jesus is coming as a, as, a, as a lion. One day he's coming and he's going to execute that judgment that Isaiah prophesied. And that's a different story. But right now he's a lamb of God that taketh away the sin of the world. And we can help. Father, bless now the invitation and we do thank you, Lord, for the nature and the ministry of our Lord Jesus. Who in this time and in this place, in these days of great grace, he has come to restore, to revive, to regenerate. I pray we'll recognize it in our hearts and lives and in the lives of others who we love. For those who've asked our prayer for salvation, Lord, may they recognize that they have nothing. They have nothing, no spark, no flame, nothing without Jesus Christ. May they turn to him today and now. And we'll praise you for that in Jesus' precious name. Amen.